The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, joining you from the lands of the Lekwungen speaking peoples. Those are the Songhees and the Esquimalt First Nations in what's recently known as Victoria, BC, Canada. I was so pleased to finally meet my next guest. She proved to be even more lovely and interesting in conversation than she already seemed to be in her social media presence. And you know, and that's such a relief where you're like following somebody and they seem so cool. And then you meet them in person and you're like, oh yeah, these, they're very cool. <laughs> so Marika is as cool in person as she seems online. Marika Heinrichs is the daughter of German Mennonite, British, and Irish settlers to the part of Turtle Island, colonially known as Canada. She is a queer, femme, somatics practitioner and facilitator whose work focuses on the recovery of ancestral wisdom through body-based ways of knowing. So this was one of the things that made me lean in even more deeply into following Marika online on Instagram. Her handle is Wild Body Somatics. She was really, I've, I've witnessed her kind of go from here's what somatics is, here's how we need to understand somatics in, um, uh, she wasn't really talking about activist circles, but she was talking about like pol- what, what's known as politicized somatics. Um, so meaning bringing an intersectional lens to somatics, bringing um, the wisdom of activists in somatics into this healing modality. So she was really deepening online her inquiry into what does it mean to be a somatics practitioner as a white-bodied person? How do we honor lineage? How do we practice ethically? These are excellent questions, not just in somatics, but in many different therapeutic um, modalities. She's also challenging the appropriation and erasure of indigenous knowledge in the field of somatics. So anyway, naturally, I was like, this is my jam and (laughs) was so delighted we finally got a chance to speak. Marika resides on Adewanderan, Haudenosaunee, and Anishinaabe territory known as Guelph, Ontario. I really hope you'll enjoy this conversation. I know it provided food for thought for me. So Marika, what identities do you lead with? Hmm. Um, well, I am a queer femme um, somatics practitioner, and I am also the granddaughter of um, Mennonite, German, Irish, and British settlers to this part of Turtle Island that is colonial, colonially known as Canada. Um, and yeah, those pieces feel really like they each hold um, a really like precious, important kind of part of who I am. Um, and they all kind of intersect, but are, are also important in their own ways. Mm. Yeah. Your Instagram handle is Wild Body Somatics, and that's how I've come to meet your work. Mm-hmm. What does that name mean to you? <laughs> um it's funny when we name things because the names of things 
it's like the, it, it, there's a kind of like spell casting quality to it. Like mm-hmm. you name something and then it's like, oh, that intention has been set. And now you're kind of, so in some ways it's like, I made a choice. And in other ways it's like become its own thing. But um, I, th- I think a lot about like the body as this kind of um, like ecosystem and sort of gateway or portal to ways of being that exist outside of the sort of like systems of domination that we live inside of. And so the, the wildness is about a kind of like recovering or, or remembering of that or a rewilding, although I feel like that word gets used in a lot of different ways. So, um, but yeah, there's something for me about like being in that, being in that like wildness. And it also relates to queerness in the sense that there's this kind of like, um, yeah, like sort of like deviant or unruly or kind of like um, liberatory quality to wildness as well. That mm. that feels really, yeah, central. Mm. What do you mean by somatics? So I, I, I would love to hear a bit about your uh, training and professional background, but also I, I'm mm. grappling with the word somatics because I'm like, oh, I heard it one time years ago and like got it kind of just intuitively. Oh, I get what that means. But a lot of people don't get what it means. And they ask me, what, oh, what what is somatics? And sometimes mm-hmm. that's like a thought stopping question for me because I'm like, oh, I have to get out of my body and into my brain because my body just understood what it meant mm. when I heard it. And that's not the case for everyone. So what do you mean by somatics and how have, has your work been constructed? Mm. Yeah, this is a great question. And um, so many people ask this because it's so funny to have something that's like kind of blowing up and yet still so hard to understand or define. (laughs) Um, So I think about it in two ways. So the first kind of simple definition I like to give is like, Somatics is kind of the intentional practice of bringing um, awareness to our embodied experience through attention, through um, sensation, through movement, gesture. Um, And then I would also say um, through kind of like creative practices and really anything that like where we're bringing a conscious awareness of the embodied experience that we're having, um, kind of building those like links or, or neural pathways. Mm-hmm. Um, and the an embodied experience for me also includes the unconscious or kind of like, I guess, tr- sort of like transcendental experiences that are grounded in the body, um, that are connected to the body. And I can say more about that if that's not clear, but so that's kind of like the practical piece is it's the whole of our embodied experience. So it's, not just what like kind of lives below our conscious awareness, but like really bringing those things together so that we can have more of a sense of like integration and wholeness and choice in ourselves because so often we're responding from an, from an, a bodily place that we don't fully like understand. Um, so that's the kind of like working definition. And then I think a lot about um, two people who've like had a huge influence on my understanding of this work in the kind of like cultural, political, spiritual context that we're in. Um, And one of them is one of my teachers, Don Hanlon Johnson, who says somatics is a fiction (laughs) and is his sort of um, way of describing it is that it was an umbrella term that was kind of like chosen by Thomas um, Hanna and 
you know, to kind of describe and bring together a whole bunch of these like disparate fields of like body-based practices that people were kind of experimenting with as a way to kind of create a community and a space where people could sort of talk to each other and, and kind of build this like community of practice. Um, and then another person who has really like helped me to understand like what felt like, like an embodied knowing, but that I hadn't like articulated is Prentice Hemphill. And they said that, you know, we wouldn't need somatics if we didn't have a mind-body division in the first place. Mm-hmm. And it's because of that split that we need something like somatics. And and Don has said a similar thing in, in conversations we've talked about, like, um, that we only need this because it's it was disconnected. And so I think of this of somatics as like bringing things back into relationship that are like actually inherently in relationship mm-hmm. and that somehow that relationship got disconnected. Mm-hmm. Um, so similarly, I feel like I'm grappling with it. And it's like, whenever we're kind of trying to like weave together, like the ancient and ancestral and like modern and contemporary were sort of, yeah, kind of having to be in the present conditions, but also like drawing on um, other ways of knowing. So it's a uh, imperfect as most words are. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I had, I had posted about like, what are, what does somatics mean on my Instagram and was like, what is like the most basic way <laughs> I could say this? And it was like maybe overbroad in general, but it led to really good conversations. And one of the comments was from Kai Chang, Kai Chang Tom, who also does mm-hmm. somatics. And um, they also it recently got certified in hypnotherapy and they had asked me, Oh, what do you think of the school that you went to? And I highly recommended it. And so they've completed mm-hmm. that. And they said, would you consider hypnotherapy somatics? And I was like, Ooh, trick question. It depends who's doing it. Cause there's yeah. plenty of practitioners who are, who, who clearly have quite a split <laughs> between like what's happening mm-hmm. cognitively and what they're like consciously aware of and can do it in a very disembodied way. But if we go back to like what we're actually talking about, if there wasn't the mind body split, it's like, yeah, self-hypnosis would be a somatic practice. It's a thing that humans would like naturally move towards to do, to seek connection, integration, understanding, um, Mm self-soothing, to, to populate our inner world with, with, um, you know, compassionate parts of the self that we can turn to for, um, you know, support and guidance, that kind of thing. I'm like, yeah, it can be. So like Mm -hmm. a lot of things are even called somatics that sometimes I'm like, Mm, I've never experienced such a heady way of being embodied, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, totally. so, so it's, uh, there's a lot to grapple with and, and it's yeah. like, it really depends. It's so contextual. Um, yeah. what, what did you do for training for, for folks to, you know, surely a few minutes in people are already like, wow, she has a particular lens and a particular mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of approach and languaging. Um, where did you learn? Mm. Um, my introduction to somatics, um, both the word and the practice came through a lineage called generative somatics, um, which is very much about bringing the kind of political and somatic together. And that I kind of like discovered it or learned about it at a time in my life when I was like very, very involved in a particular kind of like activist work, um, 
mostly in um, Tecronto and um, Toronto and doing a lot of like migrant justice organizing and indigenous solidarity organizing and um, was right around the time that the G20 um, summit had happened in Toronto and which is this like huge global economic summit. And I was part of a big um, effort in the city to like organize like a week of action around it. So I was really in the throes of that work and also the trauma that comes with it from both like outside and inside. <laughs> um, and somehow ended up at this workshop led by Vanessar Tarakali, who is a generative somatics practitioner and that a couple of friends of mine had organized. And it was like sitting there and being in this space where we were tending to the like nervous system and the embodied experiences we were having as they related to this like work that we were doing, just like brought something together for me that had totally been, I'd known was missing, but like didn't know what was missing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, and then I kind of like forgot about that. And like, I saw a body worker um, who was trained in an approach called Brennan integration work, which was like a kind of like energy healing um, for like many years in, in my twenties, who was like really instrumental for me. I kind of did one session of talk therapy and very quickly knew that I needed to get on a table. I don't know how I knew that. I just did. Mm. Um, and then I moved to Halifax to go to therapy school and there happened to be a generative somatics practitioner there. And I got to start working with her. Um, and then through that, I applied to do some training with the organization and I did, um, an intensive body work training with them in um, California in I think 2017. And then alongside that, I was learning about developmental trauma and developing a practice as a psychotherapist, mostly working with queer and trans youth um, and families. And so I was doing all this like developmental trauma training, learning about like neuroscience and the nervous system and just kind of like developing a sense of, or an understanding of trauma and of developmental trauma that led me to exploring different approaches that were more oriented to like developmental trauma specifically. Um, and I kind of just like wandered around, like I would go to anything somatic I could find. Um, I was really struggling with like, do I need to get certified in something? I did one module of somatic experiencing and it like really didn't work for me especially coming from like such a political background in GS. And then um, I did, I started a craniosacral therapy training because I knew I wanted to learn body work and it was really powerful and profound, um, but really challenging in terms of addressing trauma and power mm. in the training even. Mm. Um, and then COVID happened and I had access suddenly to learning this other modality that I've been really curious about um, called neuroaffective touch. And that um, is a training that I'm just about to finish. And I also did, I became a, a focusing trainer um, early on in my therapy days because um, I'd grown up with a parent who was a focusing teacher mm. and it's a really beautiful lineage that felt really like um, it had a lot of integrity and it felt really so complimentary and supportive to all of the different kinds of work I was doing. Um, yeah, so I've kind of, and then I started to do a PhD in tra transpersonal psychology and somatics, <laughs> but I've basically like never 
my one of my friends calls me a somatic therapy anarchist because I'm just <laughs> kind of like I don't want to hitch my wagon to any one um, thing. And the more that this work grows, the more it starts to feel like you have to like kind of join this like dogmatic kind of weird like I don't know. There's like something about how you do one thing and uplift that one thing. And I just really like doing different things and bringing them together. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and there's a yeah. capitalist element here where mm-hmm. you can only afford to do one thing because it's like, they're so <laughs> expensive. It's like, are you kidding? Like you, yeah. wait, I, I just want to say I was, I was the same with Essie, somatic experiencing where it was just like, can we talk about the cost of this program, please? And like, can we talk about the hierarchy happening here? And can we talk mm-hmm. about the whiteness happening here? Anyway, so that, you know, there are problems that I recognize a lot of people benefit from it. And I also think mm-hmm. that it's like really important um, in to have like a, a good foundation and all that stuff. It's like good to go slowly, methodically be all that stuff. However, um, expense, length of time, amount of investment uh, of your whole life and identity does not constitute really even necessarily a, a thorough or excellent education, which anybody who's mm-hmm. gone through any kind of, you know, academic thing knows it's it, mm-hmm. anyway. So, but I, what I wanted to say was, um, I love what you shared about generative somatics because in 2007, I was at a thing called the Social Venture Institute, which is like conscious business, conscious capitalism. That's when I believed conscious capitalism could happen. I didn't realize what an oxymoron it was, or I didn't realize what a sell job capitalism was and liberalism was trying to do. Mm. But at the time I was there at this um, conference on an island here in BC, Cortez, Hollyhock, and one of the panelists there was Adrian Marie Brown. So it's like a fairly, you know, it's on a tiny island. There's like a hundred people. So it's, it's like, you're you're pretty up close and personal. And she was talking about the ruckus society and um, sort of like, I don't know if they use the word somatic, but they were talking Mm. about embodiment and particularly with Mm. protest and actions and like what Mm -hmm. to do with your body before, during, and after, if you're going to like put your body on the line. And Mm. so that's how I'd heard about generative somatics and, or at least it was like formulating, there was like something happening. Mm. And so I was Mm -hmm. following them and on like newsletter stuff and, and like always was like, wishing there was training near me or close by, but then it was like, then I just forgot about it. (laughs) I just like forgot Mm -hmm. about it for 10 years or whatever. And then (laughs) was like, Oh, now I, I, I'm ready. And I love it. I'd like to get in. And it was so hard to get in. (laughs) And I was like, Mm -hmm. you know, Oh, and, and also the way it was set up, it was like, not everybody should be taking it. And I was like, Mm -hmm. "Eh," you know, like I'm I'm like a straight cis white woman. Like I, I, I'm not gonna like vie for one of these like super coveted spots, but I still was waiting for some mm-hmm. offerings and, you know, can't, can't do it now, unfortunately, but it's, um, I think it's really fabulous to name that this was like a very important uh, mm-hmm. movement for mm-hmm. a while there that really platformed and was like holding down somatics before, oh, yeah. you know, um, mm-hmm. it got so let's say commercialized. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And there's so much like, I want to say like blood, sweat and tears of like organizers and like specifically BIPOC practitioners and teachers and 
um, just like that have that has gone into that lineage, which mm-hmm. like you often don't realize has informed BLM and like mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and like surge and these like other like big movement spaces that like have um, people who have who have been there like really like shaping and talking about the body in in their strategy mm-hmm. for um, twenty for a years. long time. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it makes a real difference in terms of like you know, having been inside of some of those spaces and conversations, like being able to see like how people are able to show up in the moment, like when stuff is going down in a way that like I wasn't experiencing in my like local activist communities. And mm-hmm. um, that's another like sort of um, tangent, but like I decided to become a therapist because of the trauma that was happening inside of the activist communities that I was a part of. And so um, when I found yes, it was like, there's some, there's somewhere that's talking about the intersections of these things. And, um, yeah. And I think it's, we have like, there's much more happening in that conversation now. And, um, Resta Menikam's work has like added so much to that and as well as like many, many, many other folks. But, um, I think if we like look back on the work of like so many kind of like black feminist theorists and, and writers like Audre Lorde and Bell Hooks and, Patricia Hill Collins, like they were all writing about the body. <laughs> they were mm-hmm. all talking about the body. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been like really a, a woven into and so much a part of like black and indigenous um, cultural spaces. And, you know, for some of us, it's like, oh, I just learned about this thing. But like, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. been there and it's been inf- influencing what, what we've been experiencing for, I mean, for always. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So when did you first become aware of your whiteness as a <laughs> practitioner of somatics? Um, I was aware, I mean, I was aware of my whiteness before I was aware of somatics, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, which I guess is like a bit of a benefit in terms of like, I, I know and like work with a lot of therapists and practitioners who really only became aware of their whiteness after they become therapists. Mm-hmm. And I think I did it the other way around, which is, I'm grateful for having had that mm, like timeline. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I started to really become aware of and, and explore and reflect on what it meant to be white. And I think really explicitly, like in my early to mid twenties, when I was spending a lot more time in indigenous community and like learning from and listening to indigenous people specifically like the women's drum group from grassy narrows and folks at six nations um in kind of like this part of the province around um Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe communities and like just being really like and also in grad school like just really Mm -hmm. being asked and like nudged to kind of notice like who my people were and what was bringing me to this struggle and um and being in relationship with like folks of color mm-hmm. and I could probably like trace it back to even earlier memories than that you know just mm-hmm. like growing up in childhood but I would say it was in some ways in generative somatics that I became aware of like what it meant to be white as a practitioner <laughs> mm-hmm. um in like moments in the training when we like really worked explicitly with race in the room um being able to like folks of color having the option to choose whether or not they wanted to like work with white people for specific practices or the ways that we addressed 
issues of racism or anti-blackness when they came up in the room. Like I was put into this position of like actually feeling whiteness in my body, mm-hmm. which was like a very new experience that I'd been really craving and looking for. And like, it had been so hard to find. Um, and that was when I, I actually made contact with like how dysregulated I felt around in relationship to my own whiteness. And thankfully at the same time as learning that there was like some, something I could do about it. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> um, but yeah, I would say it was in those training rooms and, and in like other, just like, yeah, community spaces and moments when like whiteness would be named and just being like, I'm so like dysregulated, like I'm trembling or I'm like shutting down or I'm going into like a fight flight response. Like, um, and like thinking about how that showed up in my work as a therapist. Mm. I want to amplify that piece for, for listeners and just how relatable that is. Um, particularly those of us who are like North of the 49th parallel, uh, because my experience of, un- of of coming into confrontation really with my whiteness was the Truth and Reconciliation Commission public hearings. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like one thing to, to read the books and yeah, have Indigenous friends growing up in a, now I live in a, t- a city that I call segregated, but when I grew up in rural Canada, it was integrated, you know, there was reservations on all three entrances to town. So like the indigenous experience in contrast to the white experience was super visible and we all went to the same school and like had to integrate, you know, like it was, Mm -hmm. so there was awareness of my whiteness, but the dysregulation of it and trying to like keep my shit together in a public hearing of uh, residential school survivors was like, oh, I need to actually get training. And that's when I was like, okay, now I'm going to get into somatics because this I want to bring into the, into the room of anything I'm doing, uh, public rituals. I was doing like rites of passage, um, uh, collective rituals for adolescents and different things like that, that I, I was, uh, embarking on or thinking about leading quest. And I was like, okay, I need to like I need to be embodied differently so I can bring people in to sit with an elder who's probably going to talk about residential school. And like, Mm. I need to be able to hold that Mm. and help the white folks hold that. So I need training. (laughs) So Mm. I similarly, but not as well, like everything kind of had to converge at the same time where then I went into my somatics training and was like, oh, you all don't understand how unsafe this is. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. I was like, no. So, and that creates a a different kind of tension around critiquing a teacher, you know, just like the Mm -hmm. awareness of power, rank and privilege and how Mm -hmm. even in quote healing spaces, whiteness is a motherfucker to quote Mm -hmm. Desiree Attaway. Like, it's just like, (laughs) you know, like it it was like, oh, wow, Mm -hmm. I'm bringing it white, you know, bringing awareness of whiteness and the white fragility in like Mm -hmm. the dysregulation of my somatics teachers was Mm -hmm. wild. (laughs) So, so um, yeah, I just want to name that. That's a thing that a lot of practitioners Mm -hmm. experience. If you like had Mm -hmm. a sense of whiteness before, and then you go into trainings and the practitioner who's teaching 
does not have awareness of their whiteness. Mm-hmm. Wow, that training does not inoculate them from getting <laughs> totally no. dysregulated. No. You have to have a very particular kind of um, awareness of, of how whiteness is in the body and actually work yeah. with that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I have a good. Oh, I was just going to say, hearing you say that I have this like vision or like, like, I want to be like, by the time I die, I want like every somatics training to acknowledge that somatics only exists because of white supremacy. Right. We would not need somatics without white supremacy. Mm -hmm. So if you're not naming it right away, that is like part of the invisibilization of whiteness, Uh, which I think is like what I'm hearing you say. Yes. hundred percent. hundred percent. And may like, it be so. Exactly. And so it is. And so yeah. it is. So good. Yeah. So you have a program where you facilitate an exploration of somatic lineages for white bodied practitioners. And this is where, you know, I'd been following you on Instagram. I was like, yeah, this is my jam. I love these. Like the, the way she's articulating is like different for me, but I totally like love, admire props to what Marika's saying. And then when you were like, this is a course for people to explore their lineages, I was like, oh my, oh, if only I'd had this two years ago, because it's so much nicer when somebody else holds the space for you, instead of like Mm. grappling and having to like bump up against things that become, um, negative examples, right? Like, okay, so I know what not to do. I know what not to do. I know what not to do. (laughs) So can you share about Mm -hmm. how you developed that program and maybe a little more about why specifically? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you for asking that. Um, well, I, I think I, you know, and in my, in my kind of like before, before life, um, doing more, I say like activist work, like I still think of myself as like an activist and a troublemaker, but it's just in a different context. But I had like been given such a, like the gift of such a like deep education about appropriation and um, where it comes from and what kind of like leads to it. And like more and more from, and like, there are many things I love about GS, but even in that training, I was like, where does this come from? What is this? who did, who developed this? We're not talking about it. Um, and that has since become a much bigger conversation in that community, but I guess it's, um, there's just like something to my nature where I always want to understand the roots of things. And I, that's always been like a tension for me in somatics. And so as I started to kind of like explore more, um, about where practices come from. And I, it, it was, I also want to say it was like very, very deeply influenced by the work of one of my mentors, Susan Raffo, who has written two pieces specifically kind of about one really about the lineage of craniosacral therapy. Um, and then another one just about in general, kind of like a protocol for healers around naming our practices. So I started to just kind of follow the the like suggestions that she outlined in, in those pieces as someone who practices in the lineage of craniosacral and then also in other things. And like, it just blew things open. (laughs) Like it just blew things open in terms of what, what was uncovered both around like violence and harm and erasure, but also like what was uncovered in terms of like beauty and like resistance and resilience that like wasn't being like celebrated or that had been lost because we weren't naming it and 
Um, and then also just the ways that like whiteness and capitalism like make everything ahistorical and like they just like emerged out of thin air, um, <laughs> which feels so like isolating and disconnected and non-relational. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this question of like, you know, what are these practices and what is my relationship to the people who develop these practices? Um, and like really wanting to have a sense of my own embodied like connection to, to, to practice. I just kind of sat and hung out in that just with like some discomfort for like a good long time. (laughs) Um, And then I would say like something that catalyzed this was during the early parts of the pandemic, um, I stopped being able to practice yoga, which I'd been like doing for over like 20 years and like has been, is very much in me and was really like such a saving grace in so many ways in my life. Um, But you know, increasingly, I just felt so uncomfortable and like, didn't know really like what to do with that. Um, and a friend of mine, um, Barry Bear wrote this beautiful series of um, blog posts about their decision to quit teaching yoga as a white person. And it kind of put words to what I'd been feeling around the same time that like my yoga studio shut down. I like hated doing yoga at home. So I just stopped and there was just this like emptiness Mm. and, they ask all these questions in those articles about like the bereftness of whiteness and the loss of our connection to our own ancestral practices. And then I just started to be like, okay, what did we do? You know, and hung out in that like space for a really long time and like felt a lot of grief and shame and loss and, um, and then I slowly started in the way that I think like, you know, happens when we leave the space open and the way that like grief allows things to move, I started to find things. And things started to find me. Mm. Um, and there's just like a list of people whose work I feel so, Michael J. Morris, Alkistis Demek, um, my osteopath, Leslie Greco, just like these moments of conversation around like, did you know that this is what our people did? Did you know this thing that I've heard? Um, this person is doing this thing and, and just starting to kind of like experiment and explore and having these moments of feeling like a direct connection to like, through like learning about the witch's Sabbath or um, just thinking about embodiment in terms of like everyday, like tending and relationships to land and song and, just these like moments of bodily, like deep remembrance happening. Um, And just feeling like, oh, I want everyone to have this. Like I want this, if we had this, we wouldn't need to keep like plundering and stealing and appropriating. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, We could really like pull back so much harm. Um, And it's one of my like core values as a practitioner that we can't responsibly and ethically um, accompany anyone to a place in their healing that we haven't gone in ourselves. Um, and so I sort of started to imagine a course that would help people to traverse this experience um, so that they could also responsibly hold space for other white people to, to work at that depth and level of like ancestry and lineage. And um, so that was the original idea. It's turned into many other things, but that was kind of how it came, came into being. 
Mm. For folks who are listening, who are like, I need to know all the people you're talking about. Cause I, I think um, I became aware of Susan Raffo maybe with an article or like a blog post, but the name didn't like link, but the concept did. And mm. then, you know, when like you're in a situation where you hear someone's name come up like three times in two weeks or something like that. And I'm like, mm. oh, okay. So everybody needs to know Susan Raffo's name, especially me. Mm. And so we'll put it all in the show notes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that people are like, I have to rewind. It's like, don't worry, you can go to numinouspodcast.com and we'll have links <laughs> in the show notes. Um, yeah. So beautiful, amazing, this beautiful space. It's become many things, but I wonder if it's helped you come to a place where you can more or less answer my next question, which is what do you think then it means to have an ethical practice? And of course, as a, as a white person, I'm thinking as a white person, but also really anyone, these are principles that Mm -hmm. anyone should have. So what are the hallmarks then would you say some of them of an Mm -hmm. ethical practice? Mm -hmm. I love that question. Um, when we like look to the kind of mythology and cosmology of our, of our ancestors as, um, people in white bodies, there are these like protocols and lessons and stories that are embedded, um, within, yeah, those teachings around how to engage in like respectful relationship with the natural world, with the more than human world, um, with the spiritual world. And um, these these kinds of practices around like exploring altered states of consciousness through the body, through um, everything that like our ancestors would have practiced that looked like somatics <laughs> I'm, I'm air quoting here um there were like constant stories and reminders embedded in daily life about like keeping things in balance and anything that we do in the other worlds is in service of like the present here and now it's is in service of like social renewal and repair and um the part of the violence of extraction and appropriation is that we take things out of all of that context. And so when we're practicing somatics without any of that context, we're reinforcing the like unbelonging of whiteness. Um, So I've been really, really into this article written by Robin Wall Kimmerer recently called The Covenant of Reciprocity. And she talks in it about like what reciprocal relationships with the land um, might actually mean or like look like or how we might practice that. And it's been really beautiful and healing. She she draws a lot on Anishinaabe teachings and I've lived on Anishinaabe territory for most of my life. So it feels very, you know, grounding for me in the sense of like being a responsible settler in relationship to this land and seeing the like resonance and similarities between like my, between Celtic, um, practices and mythology and ethics, I would say, um, and what she's kind of talking about. And like, yes, some of it is definitely about economic justice and mutual aid and reparations and like giving money back into um, communities of color so that sovereign agency 
unfulfilled opportunities to like access healing on their own terms are like abundantly available. Like that is absolutely like the number one piece of an ethical practice. I think <laughs> as by practitioners we can be doing is just like supporting the healing of um, black and indigenous and people of color in this context. But beyond that, there's all these pieces around like asking permission, um, expressing gratitude, not taking more than we need, not taking the first or the last of something. Many people in my world are also herbalists and I've learned so much from them about like relationships to the land. And I think so many of these same teachings like or principles apply to somatics, like asking permission before we like engage in a practice, including from our own lineages. And um, paying attention. She talks about paying attention as a form of um, gratitude, which I just think is so beautiful that like, um, just just really the noticing and, and like an acknowledgement and honoring of these like beautiful teachings that we get to participate in. Mm-hmm. Um, and she talks about gratitude as a way of like offsetting consent, like overconsumption and hunger, because it's actually like bathing our nervous systems in an experience of like satisfaction, which is like so anti-capitalist. <laughs> yeah. um, so those are some of the practices that I'm, yeah, kind of envisioning and, and working towards like acknowledgement and um, consent and gratitude and um, repair or reciprocity in terms of like financially and, and in terms of I think also just like because so many of these practices are land based, like they emerge from within a certain land base and context, there is a piece around like actual like embodied relationship to to the land that mm-hmm. um, that feels really important as well. So, mm-hmm. and then I, there's all the stuff about consent and blah 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 with our clients. I, okay, I was just gonna <laughs> ask that. Okay, so consent <laughs> is, uh, I think a Oh, consent is like a concept that I think people can read about, can get training for, can, can like understand intellectually and not really embody. Like it's, it's like Mm. somatics, right? It's like, it's another Mm. one of those ones that it like, I get a little perked up and a little, not quite vigilant, that's strong, but I start like really paying attention and tracking when people talk Mm -hmm. about it. Um, because I want to make sure it's not just like a, an, intellectual exercise. And so let's like expand consent a bit. Cause when you say, ask Mm. permission before you, before you engage in a practice, even from our own lineage as a person who has done a lot of, um, knocking on the doors of chiefs to say, would you be willing to offer a territorial acknowledgement or perhaps even a welcome (laughs) to, Mm -hmm. you know, at this event I'm hosting or this group that I have, or, you know, that sort of thing, you know, I've had to learn a lot about who can and who can't give permission and Mm. qualities of permission and who, you know, like the amount of relationship you have to have to determine who can give you permission? <laughs> it's like a mm-hmm. whole thing. And mm-hmm. so I don't like have any goal or, or anything with this question other than to hear you jam a little bit on like, so who can give permission mm-hmm. to a white person being like, oh, I want to engage. And we're, you know, here in um, 
Turtle Island and what's colonially known as North America, we're diasporic. So when we're talking about going back to our ancestors who are, let's say, Northern European, many of whom were displaced 2000 years ago, mm-hmm. you know, not mm-hmm. 500, but like the Romans, <laughs> like we don't know what was indigenous to us really. Mm-hmm. So like who can give permission? I, I don't have answers. I just have thoughts. Mm-hmm. I'm curious what your thoughts are. <laughs> I don't have answers either. <laughs> um, How do you grapple? Yeah. How do you grapple with this question? Yeah. Um, partially what comes up as we're talking about this is to white people, um, which is one way of just describing us, um, <laughs> is just like how this is part of the like, this is part of the loss and the cost, right? Like that we don't know that we don't have necessarily like, we didn't learn those things and that we're like out of relationship to, from from like any kind of like protocol or structure or system of like being mentored or eldered into knowledge about how to respectfully engage. Like that's, so we really are like, we just really are figuring it out. And I have this post-it note on my laptop or on my desktop that I keep here that just says doing what we don't know how to do. Um, which is a quote from a, from a workshop that I did with Michael J. Morris. Um, and it's where I think the body can really be such a tool because it, the body can help us to like feel into that space of like, I have no idea where to start. It's like, there's just nothing. Um, so yeah, I just like really like to name the, not- the nothingness because that is us touching into like the experience of whiteness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's like different prongs to your question because when we're participating across cultures where there's like especially a dynamic of like extraction and colonialism then like and there are still maybe like um kind of like protocols in place for how to ask for permission then we follow the protocols of the culture that we're engaging with um but if we don't have an intact culture (laughs) of our own to engage with then um how do we do that? And, and, you know, also knowing that like the spiritual kind of like ancestral healing community is like full of people who are like causing harm and exploiting their power. And so this is where like listening from our bodies feels really important. And um, so many of my herbalist friends will talk about introducing themselves to a plant and getting to know the plant, like in a somatic and energetic way over time and asking for permission before they harvest and having like specific practices and around like how they harvest, what parts of the plant they harvest and how much of it. Um, and I, and I, I guess that's kind of a similar way that I think about like, instead of just kind of being like, I'm Celtic <laughs> and here's all, you know, there's so much, that I can read about like my Germanic or Celtic ancestors that I have feel no sense of in my body. Like, I just can't feel it. It feels like interesting or cool, but like, it doesn't mean anything to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the ways that I have kind of engaged in this and that we talk about in the course is like listening for those moments when there's like a pull or a grab or an excitement or or an image or an emotion like something that is like 
oh, this feels like I need to know about this. I need to learn about this. And, um, but that is a communication, you know, from like our people being like, we want you here. Like, this is, this is a touching, this is a, a point to touch in. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, from my personal experience, learning about um, this kind of like, which is Sabbath concept that was really like developed by the Catholic church to kind of like demonize how like, like a pagan practice, most likely of, of Beltana or Beltane. Um, but there was something about like, okay, people are dancing together. They're moving together. They're in their bodies. This is like a very, this was a practice that was specifically targeted. I need to just like, I need to learn about this. That like just kind of led me on this journey where I started to explore that through my body, like just listening and paying attention and reading and Googling (laughs) and just like slowly pulling pieces together. Um, And if people want to hear, read more about that in detail, I wrote a a blog post about it. It's on my website. Um, But it's really like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's really, that's why the embodied piece feels so important because we can't do this through our heads only. We need our, we need our minds to help us discern, but um it's like our bodies that will remember what our brains can't. Our bodies can remember further back. hundred mm-hmm. percent. I really resonate with that. I, I want to circle back to something that I said, because I want to make sure that people, it's like, I, I want to kind of like turn on the ears to hear in a, in a little mm-hmm. way. When I say, our, you know, Europeans were dis, displaced, um, it, I'm thinking specifically of the Highlanders, um, you know, a couple hundred years ago, but the pits, the, the, you know, the Brythonic speaking people, the, that's thousands of years ago. I'm not saying that to victimize white folks more than say indigenous folks here who are more recently mm-hmm. displaced. Mm-hmm. Let's just be very clear about that. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about the, is the, the actual um, nothingness that you're talking about, that it's like everything yeah. is just kind yeah. of a piecemeal kind of thing and like incredibly recent. Um, mm-hmm. So I just, I just want to clarify that. The other mm-hmm. thing that mm-hmm. uh, when you talk about like the, where the draw is, I'd love to share an example, which is that every spring for years, particularly um, acute in the last 10 I get this ennui, this wistfulness, and I start searching um, MLS, like realtor.ca, like the, the the real estate listings for like real estate I could never afford uh, in like the crappy hometown I grew up in, I now couldn't afford to live in because of, you know, but I get this wistfulness and I get very emotional about um when I look out the window and I see like buildings close up that I don't have like a longer viewscape. Mm. And the more I was reading about um, the history of my, you know, my Scottish ancestors in the Highlands and doing all the things of ancestry DNA and all that stuff, but, but starting to read um, particularly F. Marion McNeil, who's like one of my favorite Scottish folklorists um, who was writing in the last century, uh, who look back at like, yeah, what did the Highlanders do for the wheel of the year? And she wrote about the Scots kitchen and all the stuff. And I just, I would just cry about all of these um, markers every six weeks or so about what are we doing with animal husbandry? (laughs) It's like, (laughs) there's like something happening constantly with animal husbandry. And so then there's these like four times of the year that are really important, you know, these, um, quarter days like Beltane, um, like Sawin. And 
And three of them are about animals. And what I realized that I wanted every spring was I wanted a viewscape of sheep and the Mm. sound of bleating in the gloaming. Like I could hear it in my head. I can see it. It's so vivid. It's like choking me up right now. Mm. And it took me years to realize like, oh, this is like a deep embodied rhythm. I have Mm. never lived. And that's the grief of it. And so that is the piece that's like, oh, (laughs) you know, I don't come alive like this when I read about Freya and Frigg and Thor and Odin, (laughs) even though if I trace Mm -hmm. back to where we were, there's like, oh yeah, there's a lot of Norse influence in the highlands and the islands at this point. And then it becomes, you know, I've taken a lot of Michael Newton's courses, maybe all of them, I don't know, on on Highland history and um, Gaelic, Scottish Gaelic culture. Um, But it's the physical response of ambiguous grief that's like, Mm -hmm. oh, that's the one. (laughs) That's the one. I'm going to pursue that. The other things are interesting. And, um, you know, like, yeah, when I study my Germanic, you know, history, and I'm very particular, I don't really use the word Celtic, because I think there is a kind of sort of like a second wave feminist converging on Wicca 80s commercialism that kind of took that into like Celtic women and Celtic this and that. It's like, I'm very particular about, um, so that's a language group and here's where they're from. Or like, this is, you know, like, and who, what are we talking about? And, and it, it's when the emotion comes on that I'm like, oh no, it's a very specific Highland, mm. um, grief that I experienced mm. never having lived there. So I just, I share that so that other folks, when you're saying like, go where the draw is, sometimes mm-hmm. it's curiosity and sometimes it's like um, interest and passion and like, you know, a really like bright vitality of alignment that comes to you and curiosity. And sometimes it's like bereftness and ambiguous grief and like mm-hmm. a, just a sense of sadness that can take many cycles to um, mm-hmm. understand because it, very often, if it's in the body, it's seasonal, it's land-based, it's cyclical. Those are long cycles of time. It's It takes a while to spot the pattern mm-hmm. um, in a lot of cases. And I, and I share that just because, you know, it mm-hmm. was for me. So mm-hmm. yeah, anyway, thank you for sharing all of that. Mm-hmm. I'm curious mm-hmm. how you cope with, with grief and perhaps mm-hmm. rage, but how do you cope with the grief that comes from the kind of work you're describing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for that story. It's so like rich and layered and like makes me feel like a lot of trust in the work that you're doing because it's like, oh, that feels so embodied. And like, um, I think I almost like, I, I, I rarely like want to say like finite, like definitive things about this work, but I do think that if as white people, we're not feeling grief in it, we're like not doing it right. (laughs) Or we're missing something really key. Um, there's like a, bypassing quality of because when you reconnect with something that is so lost you know there's a joy and a relief but there's also the grief of not having had it you know and um yeah and I and I have felt that like grief alongside the like excitement or or reconnection like I mean it's almost always a part of it I would say um yeah and I think maybe that's like, I don't know, part of my answer to the question, but 
something I think about a lot is like, how do we do this work responsibly in terms of like the act, the conditions that we're in now? <laughs> and, you know, there's one of the things that I, I think about a lot is like that, like that, like phrase, like we are the granddaughters of the witches you could not burn or something. And it's like, um, we are, but we're also like the granddaughters of like the people who burn the witches. Mm-hmm. And then we're also the granddaughters of the people who like came to like Turtle Island and like inflicted those same things on others. Like there's actually like mm-hmm. a direct relationship mm-hmm. between experiencing that and then reenacting it, which mm-hmm. is, is very much like has a nervous system response to like severe trauma and mm-hmm. um, which then turns into like severe abuse and violence. Mm-hmm. But my relationship to, to grief, grief and rage is like, you can't not feel the grief. <laughs> and <laughs> I often find that rage sub, like s- turns into grief, like when it's given space and grief work has become something that I um, just think of as like uh, always alongside us in this you know, and I know that there are like different practices um, in Ireland and in Italy and probably everywhere from some point in time around just like a regular recognition and marking of grief. Um, someone who I facilitated with, um, Camille Barton told me that there's Dagara grief ritual that happens like on also like on a very regular basis. So like, the idea that we have to just regularly be like tending to grief collectively is just like, even that is an ancestral practice. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, I think like how we can kind of weave that in and like start to move some of that so that we can show up like more trust, trustfully um, and impactfully in the work that we're like doing whether that's in like multiracial spaces or in anti-racism spaces or whatever kinds of like like this work needs to be in service of the you know of like social renewal and like the social the the, collective well-being and collective liberation it's not just to make us feel better Mm -hmm. um and I think grief can be so like transforming transformative because of how it like also opens up space to like what else could be possible Mm. I feel so much more dignity in myself um I don't I can be so much more like grounded and and I mean I'm saying this like as someone who like fucks up all the time like I'm so not perfect please like I don't consent to being like idealized (laughs) Mm -hmm. um but like I have noticed that like since allowing myself to feel into that like nothingness or grief that I can then show up more present and like um, grounded in moments of like acknowledging or addressing um, issues around like race or white supremacy because I'm not like lost in the trauma vortex of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that kind of brings us back to the piece of where we started around like I'm not as dysregulated around my whiteness so I can be more intentional and choiceful. Um, and I will be spending the rest of my life learning how to do that. It's like not ever something I'm going to figure out or get right, but that's okay. Cause that's like a fake thing anyway. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Thank you for sharing your thoughts today, Marika. This has been so 
nourishing. Talk about social renewal. Mm. <laughs> like, let's just put it out here. Like this, this has been good food. So thank you for, for serving up such goodness. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you for having me and for this conversation that was so generative for me as well. Well, there's a ton of links to all of the great resources that Marika so generously shared. Um, I've, I've put them over in the show notes at numinouspodcast.com. Find out more about Marika's work at wildbody.ca. So great to finally get to speak with her. I bet if you're a practitioner in any helping field, you're feeling pretty inspired right now. I know I am. Like meeting people like Marika makes me want to be a better human for one, but it also just makes me happy that there are such great humans out there holding it down, um, especially in areas where I feel inadequate or behind or like, yeah, just not where I wish I was. It makes me realize though also how far I've come and just, you know, it's such a long journey to unlearning capitalist, imperialist, white supremacist, patriarchy, um, and you know, it's the work of our lifetimes as white body people. Um, so all my skin kin who are listening, uh, you know, don't despair at not having it all down pat yet. This is multi-generational work. We're hopefully going to take it forward by leaps and bounds. And um, for all the black and indigenous and people of color who are listening, um, you know, I hope it provides a very tiny, small, corrective experience to hear a conversation between two white-bodied people who really are grappling with the tough questions. So listener shout-out this week goes to the two folks in Arkansas who downloaded episodes this week. I Thank you. I super appreciate it. I, I'm always just like bemused and kind of bewildered and enchanted that it's like, wow, people are downloading in just like random places. I've never been to Arkansas I, I just love that we've crossed each other's paths and we're walking the path together a little bit. Thank you for spending time with me. Um, also, do you know each other? <laughs> because if you don't, you definitely should. Let me know who you are. I'll try to hook you up. If you are a listener of the Numinous Podcast from anywhere, you should definitely comment on one of my Instagram posts. Like any post. It doesn't have to be about the podcast. Just anything. And if you're on TikTok, I am on TikTok. I am TikToking. I do the TikToks. I don't actually understand how to connect there yet. I'm just sort of stumbling around. But people are very polite and kind there so far. I really love it. But anyway, my point is, um, thank you, Arkansonians, for listening and uh, anyone who is a listener, I just totally delight in, in knowing that. So my Instagram handle is just my name, Carmen Spaniola. If you enjoyed the content of this episode, let me tell you, you will love the Numinous Network if you're looking for somatics. And I know you'll want to pre-order The Spirited Kitchen if you're interested in like animism, ancestral veneration, the seasonal activities Marika was talking about, like the Witch's Sabbath and the Wheel of the Year and all of that. Just check out my website, carmenspaniola.com, C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care.